And we're live with Be Green with Amy. Greetings. Welcome to Be Green with Amy. I'm Amy. In 2012, I adopted a plant-based lifestyle, but today I want to call it a whole plant SOS free lifestyle. And you're going to find out why soon. And I've had fantastic health results and maintained my weight loss. And I love to interview people who live this lifestyle or have knowledge and tips for us. Please feel free to comment. You could even say, be strong, be well, and be green. And we are really honored to have Dr. Alan Goldhammer is one of the world's leading experts on medically supervised water-only fasting. In 1984, Dr. Goldhammer founded and became director of True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California. Since then, he supervised the fasting and care of more than 20,000 patients. Dr. Goldhammer is the author of The Health Promoting Cookbook and co-author of The Pleasure Trap. He is also the principal author of two landmark studies that showed evidence of the benefits of water-only fasting. Welcome, Dr. Goldhammer. I am so glad that you've joined us today. Fasting has gone through many kinds of cycles of acceptance around the world, starting in the biblical days and then going on through the generations. When you started your health promoting center, True North, fasting was not really something that was thought to be health promoting or popular. And that was back in 84, is that right? That's right. In 1984, my wife, Dr. Morano, and I started the True North Health Center. And you're right. At that time, uh, fasting was uh, not at all uh, acceptable. Uh, in fact, you know, a lot of people thought that if they got on a plane in New York and they flew all the way to California, they would die somewhere over Colorado if they didn't eat those peanuts or the, the pretzels. They, they thought those pretzels saved their life. Uh, but today it's starting to change, in large part because people like Walter Longo and others published uh, information in major medical journals on the benefits of intermittent and long-term fasting. Uh, th there's a change in attitude about the fact that fasting may actually have a very beneficial uh, effect, that this ancient practice, uh, this biological adaptation may actually have a modern application in a world where dietary excess is becoming a dominant factor in people's premature death and disability. You know, whether people are dying from heart disease or cancer, autoimmune diseases, or even COVID-19, metabolic syndrome turns out to be one of the major risk factors associated with vulnerability. And metabolic syndrome is essentially people having problems with overweight, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, and the other variables that go along with dietary excess. And I wanted to let our audience know that if you do have any uh, complex health issues, stay tuned because you're going to find out how you can get a free consultation with our guest, Dr. Goldhammer. So I wanted to just bring that up before we continue. So I also mentioned in the introduction, and you have many other accolades and things that I wanted to talk about, but I'm not going to spend any more time on that. I'm going to put the rest of the references in the show notes so that people can see all that you've done throughout the decades and, and that you're looking forward to doing. But you wrote a book, well, you, you co-authored this book with Dr. Doug Lyle, and it was called The Pleasure Trap. And I think that that's really a good place to start because some people want to learn about this lifestyle and some people are trying to do it and maybe not as successful as they'd like to be. And it seems that when people learn about The Pleasure Trap, they understand why it's not their fault. And because they understand why it's not their fault, they get a better understanding of what they need to do in order to commit to this lifestyle. So can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Well, sure, you know, the pleasure trap is this hidden force that undermines health and happiness. It's actually the reason why people are overweight, why they develop metabolic syndrome, why they're, as a consequence, developing coronary disease and diabetes and autoimmune diseases. It's really why people are fat, sick, and miserable. And this hidden force is, it's, a, it's not so obvious uh, to people because it involves the artificial stimulation of dopamine in our brain. And dopamine is this neurochemical associated with pleasure. So, you know, we're designed to believe that if something feels good, it is good. And in a natural setting, you know, that holds pretty well true. But in the modern world, we've changed the environment we live in in such that we're vulnerable uh, to these pleasure traps. An example of pleasure traps can be uh, drugs. You know, drugs can make people feel good without actually being good. Another example are chemicals that we add to our food. And it's these chemicals that we add to our food that stimulate dopamine production in our brains. These chemicals added to the food, for example, of rats result in the rats systematically overeating. If you put these chemicals in rat chow, the rats will gain 49% of their weight in 60 days. And it works in humans too. If you put these chemicals in our feed or the food that people eat, we'll become progressively and predictably overweight. And the chemicals that I'm talking about are SOS. SOS, of course, is the international symbol of danger, but it also stands for salt, oil, and sugar. Because it's the addition of salt, oil, and sugar to our food that's responsible for our obesity. Um, salt, oil, and sugar are not actually food, but they're, they're highly concentrated food byproducts that are added to food to stimulate dopamine production and make food taste better. That's essentially what tasting better means, is it has a higher caloric density, more calories uh, per unit. And so when we take food and then we add salt, oil, and sugar into it, it tastes better, it results in systematic overeating, and eventually that leads to obesity, which it contributes to metabolic syndrome, which is why you know, people are vulnerable from dying from everything from cancer and heart disease to COVID-19. And that's something that most of these weight loss places don't really take into consideration, or maybe they don't even know about it. And so you're just supposed to hold your breath and not breathe as many times per minute, and that's supposed to work. But long-term, eating small portions of this highly addictive food, it's just not the answer, and it's not sustainable. Well, we know it's not the answer because you can look at the outcome data and see that you know a lot of these approaches don't work very well. It's very much like if you think about alcoholism. Alcoholism is alcohol also can be an issue with the pleasure trap. The drug artificially stimulates dopamine. People like that, but because it is an artificial stimulation, it can lead to addiction. So if you become addicted, we call it alcoholism. Uh, and so even though alcohol may pe make people feel good, particularly short term, it's not necessarily something that's helping them to get healthy or happy. But you don't tell alcoholics, oh, your problem is that you're alcohol, so quit drinking. It's not that simple. They have trouble doing it. If you explain that it's the alcohol, they, you know, oftentimes they're going to be really reluctant. If you tell them, well, just, just drink less or just put your alcohol in a smaller cup and then you won't be a drunk anymore. Or just drink on the weekends or just drink beer and wine and then you won't be an alcoholic anymore. We know none of that works. The only thing that works with alcoholism is to come up with a strategy where you stop drinking. And it's difficult, but if people stop drinking, they win. And if they keep drinking, you know, they pay the consequences. So when it comes to obesity, we tell people, oh, just eat less or put your food on a smaller plate or cut your food into little bites and put your fork down between each and then you won't be overweight anymore. But it turns out that doesn't work any better than it does telling an alcoholic to just stop drinking or drink less. What, you, what the overweight person has to realize is that there are chemicals that they're ingesting they're fooling the satiety mechanisms in their brain, 
and they will continue to systematically overeat until they stop eating those chemicals. So if, a, if an overweight person realizes the reason why they're struggling with weight and they stop eating the sugar, oil, and salt, and they get their diet exclusively from whole plant foods without the SOS, without the salt, oil, and sugar, then what they'll find is they can begin to progressively lose weight. And it's not easy. It's difficult. It's one of the more difficult things you can ask a person to do in our society, to adopt a health-promoting diet in a society designed to give you what you want, not what you need. What you want is to be able to indulge your short-term pleasure-seeking self-indulgent behaviors and not pay the price for it. And that's what a lot of, you notice that's what a lot of diets do, is they tell people, oh, you can keep eating all this unhealthful stuff but lose weight. And people, you know, will pay any amount of money to engage in that type of uh, fantasy. What the truth is, and what the pleasure trap tries to teach people is that, no, you actually have to change what you put in your mouth. And you have to put food in your mouth that provides normal satiation. And then you don't have to overcome a billion years of evolution. You can just eat to satiety of whole natural, high nutrition, low caloric density foods, uh, be satisfied, get healthy, and overcome the problem. But it's not quick and it's not easy. I've been SOS free since 2012, and in the beginning, the food did not taste very good. Tasteless food at first. Because what we <laughs> was... study we did at the center is that the palate actually changes. It changes slowly with feeding. For example, it takes the average person about a month to neuroadapt to a low-sodium diet, but almost three months to neuroadapt to a low-fat diet. That means they're not feeling quite satisfied for up to three months once they get the greasy, fatty, processed, dead, decaying flesh out of their diet. And as a consequence, um, it can be very difficult telling a person, yes, you're not satisfied, but if you just stick with it for three months, you'll be okay. Or even with salt, you know, the food is, uh, doesn't taste proper to them because they're addicted to the artificial stimulation of excess sodium in the diet. It, it changes, your palate changes. Well, one thing we did at the center, though, is we found that you can change that very quickly. And one way you can change it quickly is with fasting. And we actually have a study where we, did, we were able to determine minimum threshold to salt, to sugar, and the hedonic response to these foods and, and show that the, both the perceptive response and the, the uh, ability to actually detect salt and sugar actually changes uh, with this process of medically supervised fasting. Yeah, fasting is a much faster way to refine your palate and, and get it back to the way it used to be before all the processed foods came into existence. Right. And I, I didn't know about fasting at the time, so I did it the long way right. and not the fast way. But So if I could have do it all over again, I think I would have chosen the fasting just to, just to get it done, one and done. And we're a society, you know, yeah. As long as you so, get it, it's fine. But you had enough diligence to persist through that difficult time in the beginning. Some people, it's too difficult for them. And that's why we like to bring them to places like True North Health Center in a medically supervised setting. And then they have support to get through it. If you can do it on your own, that's great. It's very much like alcoholism. If you explain to a person, look, your problem is you're drinking, you have to quit drinking, and they get it, they can quit. And that's great. If they're having trouble quitting, despite going to 12-step programs or whatever intervention they're doing, sometimes going inpatient can be very helpful. And the same thing is true for people that are struggling making uh, major diet and lifestyle changes. Sometimes that intense education and medical support can be a useful tool. But the bottom line ends up being you have to do the diet, the sleep, the exercise. You know, you can't fast forever, just like you can't go on, you, you can't healthfully go on these high protein, high fat diets forever. Even if you get some short term benefit, the long term consequences is quite unfortunate. So you have to one way or the other with, with help, without help, whatever you have to do is adopt a health promoting diet and lifestyle if the goal is to get healthy. For a lot of people, just to lose weight, not to get healthy, just to lose weight. 
And I, I point out the fastest way to lose weight, just cut your leg off at the hip. That's like 40 pounds. You know, you can do that instantly without changing your diet. Uh, but it's not a healthful way to do it. So You're right. The best way to do it, if you could fast, but you wouldn't want to do it on your own for a long term. So some people, they know sugar is bad for you, but maybe they don't know why. What would you say? Well, you know, there's some obvious things with sugar. One, it's a refined carbohydrate that has four calories per gram without any feedback. You don't get normal satiation feedback because there's no fiber. Uh, it tends to drive the insulin levels up. And then the insulin will drive your blood sugars down. And now you get these cravings. A lot of these cravings people have are because they've been eating refined carbohydrates that, that uh, muck with their insulin, stimulate their brain to think they're starving, even though they're getting plenty of calories. And so altering, uh, normalizing that function by using complex carbohydrates, plant-based foods, rather than refined carbohydrates and, and sugars and the like, uh, oftentimes uh, those cravings go away because your blood sugar level and your insulin levels begin to stabilize. It's also why exercise can be helpful, but exercise alone won't overcome uh, poor dietary choices. So uh, sugar also has other effects though. If you think about your gut, your digestive system, there's five pounds or so of bacteria living in there in organisms. And these are living creatures. So they're breathing and they're eating and they're defecating inside you right now. So you have a trillion creatures pooling inside your intestinal tract. And what they poo in you could be toxic waste like TMA, which is what bacteria tend to poo in you when you're on an animal-based diet, or they could be pooing fertilizer into you like vitamin K. So if you want your organisms in your intestinal tract to protect you and, and secrete fertilizer, then you have to feed them the soluble fibers that that are necessary. So your sweet potatoes and your squashes and your vegetables and not feed them the animal products, the meat, fish, fry, eggs, and dairy products, which change the bacterial flora. Well, salt, when you think about salt, it's a preservative. If you salt meat, it's to keep the bacteria from breaking down the meat, from making it go bad. Well, when you put a lot of salt into the intestinal tract of the human being, the microbial uh, microbiome respond and you have different types of microbiome as a consequence of that salt. So just like sugar can alter the microbiome, so can salt and so can oil. So even though you think, well, there's no calories in salt, it can still result in, in per, uh, precipitating obesity, in part because of something called passive overeating. If you just sit down and eat till you're full of, say something very healthy, like say brown rice or whatever, potatoes, you'll eat a certain amount and then you feel satisfied or satiated. If everything else being equal, if you take those same potatoes but heavily salt them, what you'll find is you'll eat more before you feel satiated. And people say, well, yeah, you eat more because they taste better. Well, that's right, they taste better because the chemical salt stimulates dopamine production in the brain and results in a higher pleasure response, um, but it's an artificial one and it leads to overconsumption. So if you eat potatoes, normalize the palate, you'll like potatoes, you don't have to put a bunch of salt on there. In fact, after you've neuroadapted, you've probably already found this. If you eat stuff that's heavily sold, you don't even like it. It's too much. But once you're when you're addicted to that, that you need that, and the plain potato tastes like tasteless swell. So this is why it's not so obvious because something like salt has no calories, yet it makes people fat. It makes people fat because it alters the microbiome, but it makes people fat because it stimulates passive overeating. But it's not something that happens immediately, it's slowly over time. And so it's not intuitively obvious to people what's going on. You're absolutely right. Not having those chemicals makes a difference. And then if you wind up at somebody's home or at a restaurant, and you even in the past when I've eaten at a restaurant, I've asked them not to add those things. Somehow it 
still tasted that way. I don't know if it came off of a grill or whatever, but yeah, I became well, very, very attuned. Well, a lot of times adding salt is reflexive for chefs. They don't even, you know, they just can't, they don't even remember that they've done it. It's just really hard to resist that. Uh, and they also yes. can't imagine how would you actually eat food if it wasn't full of salt, oil, and sugar. I mean, being a chef in part is learning how to deliver salt, oil, and sugar to the palate of people. The food itself is really just a carrier agent. Let's talk about the oil for oil. Well, so oil is, again, not a food. It's a highly fractionated food byproduct. You rip the cell apart, take one component out. That component has nine calories per gram, almost two and a half times as much as using pure sugar. And, you know, like John McDougall is fond of saying, the fat you eat is the fat you wear. And if you do a fat biopsy of an individual, you can tell what kind of fat they've been eating because it ends up storing oftentimes in the same format that it's consumed, especially if it's in excess uh, of uh, needed calories. So fat... Uh, provides a lot of calories, not a lot of feedback, but highly stimulating as far as uh, the, the pleasure trap uh, issue is concerned. The dietary pleasure trap uh, stimulated by eating oils, and particularly we take oils and we heat them at high temperature and then fry stuff and essentially soaking grease up into the otherwise healthy agents like potatoes. And you turn what would be a healthy food like potato into a very unhealthy food like potato chips or french fries. You increase caloric density several fold and the net result is people get overweight and develop coronary artery disease and cancer and diabetes, and then they wonder what happened. You don't believe that caffeine is something good to include as well. So tell me about that. Caffeine is a highly addictive nervous system stimulant. Okay, there's no question about that. Caffeine is an addictive drug. And so when you take in caffeine, that caffeine has about a 17-hour half-life. So it takes a long time for that to even get down to 50% of its effectiveness. Therefore, the caffeine you consume anytime, including in the morning, still can have effects on quality of things like sleep. Uh, it can irritate the intestinal tract. It has an effect on the SA nodes in your heart. That's why people get uh, palpitations, arrhythmia. It can uh, have a profound effect on the nervous system. So taking a highly addictive drug, whether it's caffeine or cocaine or any other drug, is not health-promoting. And what's kind of, in my mind, criminal is that we give this highly addictive drug even to our children. We hide it in their cola and their, their uh, chocolate drinks and their candies and their, and, and so you're, you're, you're starting to drug your kids even, uh, even when they're very young. And, and of course, as adults, uh, people use coffee uh, ubiquitously and uh, it, it compromises people's health. Ask anybody with gastritis how they feel about drinking coffee and they'll tell you it's you know, really irritating the stomach. It's just as irritating to a healthy person's stomach. They just have some protective mechanisms which make it so it's not quite so painful. We don't necessarily have nerve endings in our organs and so forth until they become damaged. Then we maybe feel things, but otherwise our bladder doesn't say, ow, don't and do you something to, through it. When you wake up in the morning and you're so exhausted that you need a highly addictive nervous system drug to even be able to function, that's a sign you didn't get the quality or quantity of sleep you needed or you're not living the type of lifestyle that's conducive to optimum health. So people are in the morning trying to drug themselves awake, and then at night they can't get to sleep, so they might take other drugs to do that, and then it's just that vicious cycle. Now, what about alcohol? Well, again, alcohol is a noxious drug. It's got seven calories per gram. It's almost as concentrated as pure fat. You think about it, alcohol is seven calories per gram, uh, uh, whereas um, fat is nine calories per gram. Alcohol doesn't give you any good satiety feedback, which is why men get those really attractive beer bellies, you know, when they drink lots of alcohol. Or even better now, you know, the plumber's crack, you know, the uh, 
they've had to, I understand, raise the height of the jeans a couple inches to keep people from uh, being too excited about those plumber's cracks that I guess everybody likes. But uh, So alcohol is great if you want to gain weight. If you're looking to become obese, there's probably no easier way to do it than just drink a bunch of alcohol. Yeah. The other thing about alcohol, which is interesting, is people get scar tissue in their livers, and it's called cirrhosis. That's essentially what cirrhosis of the liver is. It's fatty infiltrate that comes from the liver having to detoxify the toxic effects of alcohol, including red wine, which they try to justify as health food because there's still a little bit of resveratrol left in there. The powerful antioxidant that's purported to be so beneficial in wine actually comes from the skin of grapes. I suggest instead of compromising your health with drinking alcohol, what you could do is eat some grapes. And they're very delicious. I like them frozen too, because then they, they last a little bit longer, but they're, they're a really good treat. So some people are worried about gluten. Where do you stand on gluten? Well, you know, the wheat that we eat today is not the wheat of our ancestors. You know, they're, you know I think 10 times as much wheat per acre as they used to by manipulating the genetics of wheat. Uh, you know, you notice now modern wheat fields, it stands straight up that lends itself to uh, uh, harvesting machines. But in the consequence of manipulating wheat, the, the gluten itself is a protein that there's a certain percentage of people don't do well with. For example, 1% of the population have celiac disease. If they get exposed to wheat, it's a really a catastrophic uh, event. And pretty much everybody recognizes that celiac disease, you have to avoid gluten, wheat, rye, barley. And the gene, the HLA-DQ gene that's associated with celiac disease, interestingly enough, is the same gene associated with gluten sensitivity. And so some people, the immune system in celiac disease, what happens is the immune system reacts to the gluten and attacks the colon uh, or the intestinal uh, lining. In some people, it, the this immune system doesn't attack the colon, but it attacks the thyroid. And the thyroid gland, when it's attacked, is called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. That's essentially where your immune system is attacking your own tissue. And wheat appears, to, or gluten appears to be a trigger uh, in, in a significant percentage of people that have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Some people it doesn't attack the thyroid, but it attacks the joints, and people manifest joint pain or osteoarthritis symptoms, or they get headaches, or they get digestive difficulties, um, they get uh, colitis symptoms. And so if you remove gluten from those people, even though they may not have celiac disease, they may get improvement in their symptoms. They notice if they eat breads and products with a lot of wheat products, and if they get these these cascade of symptoms. They wake up, they can't breathe through their nose, they get sinusitis, et cetera. When you pull the wheat out, they function better. Now, some people, they can't have any exposure to wheat or they get acute symptoms. Some people can eat wheat occasionally and may not manifest an allergic response unless they're doing it frequently. But what we found is a significant percentage of people are actually gluten sensitive, even those that may not be fully aware of it. So what we've done is we've just removed gluten from our cookbooks, from our recipes, and from our recommendations. And, you know, the truth is most people, the only thing they're eating wheat associated with is flour and cracker products and highly processed, high concentrated foods. You really shouldn't be eating those foods anyway. And as a consequence, getting rid of it actually helps on a couple levels. You get rid of it for the people that are sensitive to it. You get rid of the flour products that are usually made with it that um, have the extra salt, the oil, the sugar, and the higher caloric density. It helps facilitate with weight loss. There's really no reason for us to be using those uh, products uh, in quantity. Uh, when you think about bread versus potatoes, potatoes have about 500 calories a pound. If you fill up the human stomach with potatoes, it's about 500 calories. If you fill up the human stomach with uh, bread, it's about 1,500 calories because bread has about 1,500 calories a pound, about three times the caloric density. And that's before you turn the bread into a butter boat by spreading coagulation.
But then people say, hey, everything in moderation. Well, yeah, but you can only talk about everything in moderation if that everything is something that has a normal relationship to the organism. So you can exercise moderately, you can have sex moderately, you can uh, engage in normal behaviors moderately. But when you're talking about something that has no normal relationship to the organism, for example, using drugs, uh, drinking alcohol, these are not normal natural substances. That I agree. So I think moderation there is a bit of a misnomer. Try to adopt this lifestyle and they struggle. And there are different reasons why people struggle. Most of it is just that they don't have the right information. I've run across, if they got the right information, they could see that in people that are having these digest any of the things that they're struggling with, that there, there would be a reason and they could correct it. So I'm just going to talk about one area of struggle that I've seen people. And those are the people, and you kind of touched on it, disorders like the Crohn's and colitis and so forth. For most people, most average Americans, and what, that they're not really used to too much fiber. But now this might be different, do you think, with people with digestive disorders if they try to adopt this lifestyle? Well, the people, this is very common now for people to have digestive disorders. And it's no wonder when you look at the crap that people are putting in their mouth. You know, digestion essentially is shoving things in one hole and then eventually trying to push it out another hole. What gets absorbed is only the materials that absorb through the intestinal mucosa. And when you're constantly putting in oil, salt, sugar, animal foods, chemicals, drugs, it's not surprising that our relationship with the microbiome and our gut gets disrupted, that there's inflammation, that there's gut leakage, that there's all kinds of problems. The answer is to correct what you put in your mouth. Go to a whole plant food SOS-free diet. The problem is when you have a debilitated colon and you try to eat too much fiber at first, it can be rather distressing. So sometimes we have to process foods a little bit more initially. So instead of so much raw stuff, we may use more steamed vegetables. Instead of so much um, uh, uh, steamed starchy vegetables, we may even do a little bit of soup or process the food down. So it's a little bit easier uh, for people to break down and deal with initially just because they're they have to regrow the normal flora that's supposed to inhabit a human gut. And what they've got is an abnormal flora that's associating with people that are eating lots of greasy, fatty processed uh, foods. And so there's some time it takes to make that adjustment. Sometimes that time is so long that people become impatient with that. And so we use medically supervised water-only fasting, where we put people in a medically supervised setting, go through a period of fasting, which allows their, it's like rebooting the hard drive in a computer that's been corrupted. It just recalibrates itself. Then when you put the right food in progressively, that, then the floral uh, changes take place, digestion improves, and patients with these chronic debilitating bowel diseases oftentimes are able to make a recovery. Well, that's wonderful. It seems like the foundation just needs to be changed so that you can build upon it. And I would say that people with these digestive disorders would, would not be very patient with making them because of maybe the side and the discomfort that they may have. And so I think that fasting seems like it is really a great way to transition over into this. So now, well, let's talk about fasting because a very broad topic because some people know about fasting from biblical days or maybe from religious groups that they belong to. And yet there's intermittent fasting. So talk about those. Well, sure. I'll be happy to. Um, in fact, I've got a slide here we can actually show you if you're interested. The um, most common type of fasting that people are being exposed to now is intermittent fasting, where people limit the feeding window to between 8 and 12 hours a day. So that would mean you wouldn't eat, say, three hours before you go to bed at night. You might delay your breakfast a bit so that you have a period of anywhere between 12 and 16 hours of fasting every day. And even that brief amount of fasting is enough to induce changes that cumulatively may be beneficial. 
There's also programs out there where you can use, you limit your caloric intake perhaps to 750 calories of fruits and vegetables or using products like Prolon or other things where you can kind of try to mimic the effect that fasting has with what are called fasting mimicking programs. Um, and that's fine. And sometimes those may be helpful for people that are trying to uh, lose weight or make you know dietary changes. There's also uh, a different type of fasting, which is actual fasting, not mimicking fasting, but water only fasting where our patients come in in a controlled setting. Now this is you know after history exam lab and, and careful medical monitoring. And they go for periods of five to 40 days on water only. It's not just Moses, David, Elijah, and Jesus that were said to fast for 40 days. We also have a lot of patients that are fasting uh, anywhere from five to 40 days uh, in a controlled setting. And we've published studies that show that this can be done safely and effectively. For people interested, they can go to our website and they can download the studies uh, on fasting. And what, what this process does, it's a, a rather uh, ancient practice of fasting. Uh, that we're uh, happy to be able to do. And when we do that, it has a profound effect on these diseases of dietary excess. So it normalizes blood pressure, eliminates the need for medication, it normalizes type 2 diabetes, gets rid of the insulin resistance, it eliminates the gut leakage, which is associated with autoimmune disease. So these patients with rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, and spondylitis, and asthma, and eczema, psoriasis often improve profoundly. And we've also shown conditions like lymphoma, which is lymph cancer. Uh, in a paper we published in the British Medical Journal, are able to reverse uh, in some cases with fasting followed by a whole plant food diet and sustain those results. And so, and of course, with weight loss, uh, fasting is, is the, you know, obviously there's nothing faster than fasting when it comes to losing weight. You lose a pound a day on average. And what's exciting is we've been able to prove now that um, it's not, uh, when you go on a fast, you lose fat, you lose water, fiber, glycogen, and protein. When you come off the fast, you regain weight. But what you're regaining is glycogen, water, protein, and not fat. That fat actually continues to come off if you're eating a whole plant food diet. And so we've got a study now that we've done uh, uh, that will be coming out here uh, shortly where we use our DEXA scanner to actually track what exactly happens to uh, the body during fasting. And it shows what happens to not just fat, but more importantly, visceral fat. So we know now that visceral fat is the type of fat most associated with disease, pathology, cancer, even vulnerability to things like COVID. And it's visceral fat that's preferentially mobilized during water and fasting. So let's say a person loses 20% of their total fat during a fast, they may lose 50% of their visceral fat. And then after fasting, fat loss will continue, but the water, glycogen, protein, and fiber will be, re be restored. And so, the whole body composition begins to change. So think about all the complexities. If you look at this slide, this is a slide that off the DEXA scan that shows the changes in the person. This is baseline after 15 days of fasting and then after seven days of refeeding. And you notice here this magenta line that shows that weight goes down and then weight comes back up, but fat, the black line, continues to come down. And so, uh, and in this particular case, uh, the person was able to um, lose um, a you know, substantial percentage of their body weight. And in fact, the ratio of visceral fat to, to uh, subcutaneous fat was actually 2.94, which is about the highest ratio of visceral fat loss that I think that's been demonstrated. And this is just an individual case. We've done an actual entire study now. We've had uh, 30 subjects and we've actually got them follow up at six weeks. We fly them back in 
to the center, we reevaluate them, and we're able to show not only does that happen while they're at the True North Health Center, but it actually continues when they're. That is just so amazing. That's well, uh, pretty helpful. Highly motivated, self-selected people, and there's not everybody's going to be willing to do this kind of stuff. The people willing to do this are usually highly motivated, so we have obviously we're going to have a better chance. This slide here actually shows that this was the percentage of weight that was lost. This was the percentage of fat that was lost. This was the percentage of visceral fat that was lost, and this was the lean tissue that was lost. So it gives you a little graphic idea. And what you say, well, why would the body preferentially mobilize this damaging visceral fat? Well, because it shouldn't be there. It's only there because the body didn't have any other place to put it. It didn't want to waste uh, a critically necessary reserve, which is fat, because in a world of our ancient ancestors, you know, storing fat meant survival. All them skinny ones didn't make it. You know, your ancestors were not the ones that got on the boat and died from starvation. They're the ones that got enough to eat. They probably ate everybody else, but they got theirs. And so storing fat is really important to the human beings. But when we have too much caloric intake, we'll store too much fat. That never would really happen in a natural setting, but it certainly happens today. And so getting rid of this visceral fat may turn out to be one of the keys to reducing the risk factors associated with obesity. And now we know that water-only fasting may be a way of preferentially allowing that to happen safely and effectively. So not only is fat not good for the body, but as far as image and so forth, but health-wise it is not good. And also fat isn't just fat, right? It, it has things in it that are not good for the body to hold on to. Is that right? Well, yeah, you know, many of the fat-soluble toxins that people get exposed to, the PCB, the dioxins and everything, store in those fat stores. And so, you know, your body sequesters them there, trying to figure out what to do with them. But, you know, mobilizing and processing and getting rid of those stores obviously can be very in, in, important for health. You know, and we are getting fatter and sicker by the day. It's, it's really a, a catastrophic epidemic that's going on right now. Right now, we're worrying about the effect of one isolated acute disease on uh, this pandemic that we're dealing with worldwide. But if you look at this slide, I think it might be very telling. High blood pressure is the leading contributing cause of death and disability uh, in industrialized countries. And most people now will develop high blood pressure in their lifetime. So if you're not hypertensive, you're actually abnormal by the time you reach 60. Look at this, 40% of people over 25 now have elevated blood pressure and 63% of people age 60 or more. This is an epidemic. It's the leading justification for prescription medications. It's the leading reason for uh, visits to doctors. And yet the results are very disappointing because blood pressure medication, although it might reduce risk for the people with the highest levels of hypertension, it doesn't reduce uh, the fact that most people that are dying from hypertension actually um, uh, don't have blood pressure high enough to justify the risk. You know, if your blood pressure is 138 over 88, you have five times the risk of dying but the risk of medications would be higher than that. So they don't have to wait till your blood pressure goes up so high so that the benefit of the drug that is reducing the stroke risk is offset by the damage from taking the drugs. Because it's not just chronic cough, fatigue, and impotence that you get from high blood pressure medication. It can be premature death. Healthy blood pressures are probably more like it says here, 90 over 60 uh, on average. And that the only time you see that in people is people on a whole plant food SOS-free diets. You rarely will see normal blood pressures of people that are eating greasy, fatty, salty, processed food diets. Yes, that's very true. My blood pressure, well, it's in the high 80s, but my husband had, he was actually on blood pressure medications and well, he was able to come off of them. 
Yeah. The picture shows that's how we manage high blood pressure. One, two, three, four, five medications. And what we do is we tell people, as long as you take your medications, you'll never get well. You'll be sick the rest of your life. That's how your doctor guarantees you you'll never recover. They tell you, you will be on these drugs forever because you will never get well. That's the promise of allopathic medicine today. The alternative, right. of course, would be making diet and lifestyle changes and eliminating the need for medication. But according to one of the major medical websites, it says, unfortunately, people with hypertension cannot be cured because there's no underlying cause for the high blood pressure. There is nothing that can be fixed to resolve it. And that's the opinion of most, most physicians that are practicing today. We don't know what causes essential hypertension. There's not, nothing we can do. Just take your drugs and don't ask too many questions. Right. Make sure you have your Ziploc bag to bring them all in every time you go for a checkup so you can have all the vials in there, which is really sad because there's not even any studies that show the interactions of all those medicines when together. They just only have studies how limited they are on, on the side effects of one at a time. That's fabulous. And it's really something that I'm glad that you are able to do these studies and document your work. That's what we need. We need that document to see that they work so that it can become more widely accepted way of treating these diseases that are plaguing the Western world. So if somebody got a diagnosis, maybe they got some kind of diagnosis of cancer. Let's, I'm just going to be general, but you can be more specific. If, what should they talk about with their doctor? What kind of questions should they ask? Well, you know, the thing with cancer that's interesting is when you're talking to your oncologist, there's only one really important question that you have. You say, well, uh, you've told me I have whatever the cancer is. Can you share with me the evidence that you're relying on that suggests that whatever treatment is you're recommending is going to help me either live longer or live better? You know, sometimes with cancer, you can't make the person live longer because treatment's not effective at prolonging life, but it might make them live better. For example, let's say you had a spinal uh, cord tumor that was causing pain. They might be able to remove that tumor and relieve your pain. It wouldn't necessarily make you live longer because uh, it's not going to cure your cancer, but it might make you more comfortable. Well, that might be an example of a treatment that would be justified. But if they're going to recommend, for example, uh, as they commonly do in breast cancer, chemotherapy and radiation, you'd want to see the study that suggests that people with your diagnosis and your age group are thought to get benefit from that treatment, not just side effects. And there's an interesting book I suggest people look at called uh, by Mukaraji, is a, a Pulitzer Prize winning Harvard oncologist. Uh, it talks about the emperor of all maladies. And it's really the history of cancer and its treatment. And he, sh he points out that an awful lot of stuff that we've done in treating cancer may not actually help people live longer or better. And a lot of it's being rethought. Uh, and so, you know, that's the point is if you're going to consider any treatment, alternative or otherwise, you want to know, you know, what's the risk profile and what's the potential benefit. And surprisingly, in many conditions, there's not actually a lot of evidence that all cause mortality is reduced because of treatment, which means that people aren't actually on average living much longer because they treat or they don't treat. And so, you know, sometimes if the side effects are profound, uh, treatment may be more questionable. And, you know, that's, uh, depends on the age of the patient. And certainly you want to talk to the, to a, a knowledgeable oncologist about the potential benefits as well. But, you know, for example, now we have some new treatments in medicine where, uh, like for example, immunotherapy, where they have drugs that are designed to stimulate the immune system to try to attack uh, the cancer. And it may, in some cases, work better than the old chemotherapy where it basically was trying to poison everything. Uh, and so, 
The other thing that we've learned now is that fasting may augment even conventional chemotherapy. For example, Walter Longo did some studies where they looked at cancer in rats and they would give enough chemotherapy to kill the cancer, but rats would all die because, you know, the chemotherapy has toxin. But they took the same rats with the same kind of cancer and the same chemotherapy, but they used fasting uh, before, during, and after treatment, and all 30 rats would survive dramatically enhancing cancer-free survival. And what they discovered is there's something called differential stress uh, sensitization uh, that basically if you, man, if you fast uh, an animal uh, before chemotherapy, the fasting induces changes that allow chemotherapy to be more effective and they help the healthy cells avoid some of the consequences of uh, the chemotherapy. And so now they're trying to do work in humans where they're trying to use intermittent fasting as an augmentation to conventional treatment. Uh, and we've been able to show, at least in case reports, that some cancers like lymphoma may respond to fasting alone. That's so profound. I think that we're going to go and move into our chat box and see if we have some questions from our audience. Rick T. He said, my doctor says my PSA levels are high. Would fasting help lower my PSA? So you want to tell the audience about PSA in case they don't know. Prostate-specific antigen is a very weak test that's used commonly to monitor prostate cancer. It's not sensitive or specific. And so even if something does lower PSA, for example, fasting will lower PSA in many cases, that doesn't necessarily mean you're resolving the prostate cancer. It just means there's less inflammation. For example, if you go in and do a prostate exam on somebody and check their blood, their PSA levels will be high. Just the mechanical disruption of the prostate is enough to elaborate some of these antigens. So we have to take PSA with a little bit of grain of kelp because it's not uh, entirely reliable uh, test. And a lot of people uh, are getting uh, overly reliant on a specific test. The real question is, does fasting and diet affect prostate cancer, its formation, its progression? And there's some interesting research being done by Dean Ornish, the same doctor that did a lot of work on reversing cardiovascular disease that suggests that diet can have a profound effect on the outcomes in prostate cancer. I believe that about 80% of males 80 or over will have evidence of prostate cancer. However, it rarely is a limiting factor in how long they survive. So even if a person has prostate cancer, it doesn't necessarily mean that the risks associated with treatment are in their best interest. Again, you, you, a lot of it depends on the staging, the age, other variables. What I can say with confidence is that regardless of whatever medical treatment may or may not be appropriate for managing prostate cancer, um, diet and lifestyle seems to have strong evidence that it would be helpful in helping people live longer and live better, including with prostate cancer. And we advocate a whole plant food SOS-free diet, and if it's appropriate, we'll, we'll recommend medically supervised fasting as well. I don't think it's a question of curing cancer any more than it's a question of curing obesity. You cannot cure obesity. You can lose weight and keep it off, but if you go back to eating greasy, fatty, processed foods, you're going to get fat again. And you can, you can manage uh, uh, many types of cancer, but I don't think you're curing it because you have to eliminate the reasons why you're developing the problems to begin with. And then hopefully the quality and quantity of your life won't be as negatively impacted by it. So if you have prostate cancer, you do what you have to do medically, you know, whatever you decide is in your best interest. That doesn't in any way change the need to do the diet, sleep, exercise, and fasting. The diet, sleep, exercise, and fasting is about getting healthy. And then you have to make a decision whether medical treatment has some application in your particular case. And that might be immunotherapy, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, or surgery. You know, those are all very common types of medical intervention. 
If you look though at prostate cancer, for example, in older individuals with prostate cancer, there are definitely studies that suggest that people that do everything don't necessarily do a lot better than people that do nothing. And so that's why watchful waiting is oftentimes a recommendation for some people. Okay, Cheryl Barras. Does fasting stress the adrenal glands? I don't even know what adrenal glands do. Adrenal glands produce adrenaline. So anything that puts a, a load on the body in any way can certainly cause the adrenal glands to be stimulated and secrete uh, their substances. And so, yeah, I suppose that there is some physiological stress that's associated with deprivation that can be associated. What I can tell you though is in adrenal fatigue, when people have overstressed their adrenal glands so long that they become dysfunctional, um, these conditions oftentimes improve post-fasting, not only during the fast itself. Fasting itself can be kind of an intense process. You have to prep properly, you have to do it properly, you have to rest when you're fasting, you have to recover. It's, it's a complicated kind of a uh, uh, process. But when it's done properly, it can be very effective at helping people overcome the symptoms that they're oftentimes being labeled as adrenal fatigue. Wanda Flores, is there any research on how fasting affects fibroids? That's a good question. Yeah, uterine fibromomas um, form. And interestingly enough, if women reach menopause, they tend to spontaneously start to shrink. But they're associated with a variety of problems like menorrhagia, or you know, heavy periods, dysmenorrhea, painful periods, fibrocystic breast disease, uh, uh, PCOS, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And these conditions all improve, interestingly enough, after fasting and with diet and lifestyle change. And one theory is that the estradiol, the active estrogen hormone that normally is broken down to estriol and excreted in the urine, sometimes that process isn't taking place, so estradiol levels build up. So if you look at why does estradiol or how does estradiol break down, uh, estriol, estradiol break down to estriol, it happens from the bacterial flora in your gut and, and from liver function. So if you're eating an animal-based diet and you have a, the wrong type of microbiome and your liver's congested and not functioning properly, it's not surprising to find out that estradiol-estriol conversion may not be taking place. And that means to be associated with higher estradiol levels, which has more fibrocystic breast disease, dysmenorrhea, menorrhagia, uterine fibroid formation, et cetera. And so when we fast, we get people on these diets, the estradiol conversion seems to take place, the fibrocystic breast disease goes away, the fibroid tumors shrink, uh, the, the painful periods uh, oftentimes are resolved. Interestingly enough, it's usually the, not the first, but the second cycle after fasting, because the hormone cascade that's set up for the first cycle has already been set up before you fast. And so there's a little lag in seeing the clinical improvements. Um, and so, yeah, these conditions can improve, but it's not like everybody improves it's not as predictable as say uh, weight loss or blood pressure. You know, some improve, some improve dramatically, some improve just a little bit. Some their fibroid may not shrink, but their blood, their bleeding goes away. And uh, sometimes you won't see it right after fasting, but you'll see it in the months following fasting. So we're not sophisticated enough yet to be able to predict exactly who and how it's going to go. But overall, the results are gratifying enough that we continue to treat those patients. James T. Can fasting help with Parkinson's disease? Wow, that's yeah. So That's Parkinson's disease is an interesting disease because we were very frustrated in our early years treating Parkinson's disease because we would fast and you get some temporary improvements and we do the diet lifestyle and the physical therapy and the rehab and that was all good, but it really wasn't arresting the, the Parkinsonian uh, condition. And the only way that's really been shown to do that is with L-DOPA. Now the problem with L-DOPA is if you give enough L-DOPA to control the tremors, you get nausea that's really awful. You just, it becomes intolerable. So they discovered a drug called Cardopa that they use that controls the nausea. 
And that's what Cinemet is, the, the common drug that's used. And they, the only way L-dopa is routinely available is in conjunction with Cardopa. Well, that controls the symptoms for a while, but then you get all these downstream consequences of the Cardopa, which irreversibly binds vitamin B6 and leads to the dementia and other problems. And there's a gentleman named Marty Hines who's published a bunch of articles on this. And he uh, actually has taught seminars for doctors on how to manage Parkinson's disease instead of with the pharmaceuticals with a, a natural source of L-dopa, which is macuna, and some uh, nutritional medicine supplements, amino acids and whatnot, to control the nausea instead of using the drug. And we actually have two of our doctors that actually did that uh, training, and they do manage Parkinson's, but we don't do it without the exogenous agents. We do it with fasting and diet, plus we use macuna and amino acids and, and some supplementation in order to be able to control the Parkinson condition. And it does get controlled, and they don't get the consequences of the Cardopa. Uh, the problem is if a person's been on medication too long, if it's been more than 10 years, the results aren't as gratifying as when you see it relatively earlier in the course. So we always try to encourage people uh, to see if we can get them off the, off the pharmaceuticals earlier before they get uh, changes that are more difficult to reverse. Stacy Dion. Could someone with type 1 diabetes also be able to water fast 15 to 40 days? And would this reverse their diabetes too if they then went to an SOS plant-based diet? Yeah, see, type 1 diabetes is a different condition than type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, they have plenty of insulin. They're making more insulin, not less. It just doesn't work because of insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetics respond well to fasting, diet, and exercise. Type 1 diabetics have destroyed the islets of Langerhand in their pancreas. They're no longer producing insulin. And that is often caused because they were given cow milk when they were a child. And in genetically vulnerable kids, uh, children's immune system will attack their own pancreas and destroy their islet cells when they're given cow's milk. And so that's why uh, I think even the American Pediatric Association warns about uh, uh, whole cow milk exposure to very young kids because it can stimulate this immune response in genetically vulnerable children. And that's essentially what uh, traditionally type 1 diabetes was. Of course, now we're, we're burning out people's pancreases at younger and younger ages. What used to be, uh, you know, adult onset diabetes is actually happening in kids, and then kids progress, and eventually, when their islet cells get destroyed, um, they no longer produce insulin. Once you've destroyed your islet cells and you don't make enough insulin, you cannot do water fasting safely because you need some insulin in order to adapt to the fasting state. And so if you, if you give insulin, you're at extreme risk for a hypoglycemic crisis. So that, if that were to be done, that would have to be done, uh, you know, in an intensive care medical setting. That would be a high-risk behavior. Um, having said that, we've had a number of patients that were diagnosed as being type 1 diabetics that we've actually gotten off insulin and stable, but it's probably because they were misdiagnosed. And in fact, they were type one and a half diabetics. They were still making some insulin and then the insulin begins to regenerate. And that um, allows them to be able to normalize their blood sugars without. But this is, you know, complex medical management. Type one diabetics generally were not fasting. Type two diabetics, we often can fast. But again, it needs to be done in conjunction with a doctor that's familiar with how to do this. I don't recommend diabetics be fasting on their own. They're gonna get themselves into some trouble. Is there anything you'd like to add before you leave, Dr. Goldhammer? Yeah, health results from healthful living. You want to be healthy, you have to pay the price. Diet, sleep, and exercise. And if you have uh, questions about that, read our book, The Pleasure Trap. It's a disturbing book that will tell you what you need to know, not necessarily what you want to hear. 
If you want to get, if you have questions for me or more specific questions, I offer a no-cost phone conversation. All you have to do is go to our website, truenorthhealth.com, complete the registration forms. I'll review your medical history. You can give me a call, and I'll be happy to speak with you without cost. Um, and for those of you that are interested um, in um, fasting and the research on fasting, there's actually another website called fasting.org, which is the fasting uh, the website of our nonprofit foundation, Research Foundation. And it's a fast compendium site. It has a lot of great information uh, in addition to the information you'll find at truenorthhealth.com. We're going to put links to all of that in the show notes. I want to thank you, Dr. Goldhammer, for spending that time with us. And we surely learned a lot. And thank you for all your free information that's available on your website. It's a lot to look at. And you guys should all go on to that website because you'll get a lot of free information at truenorthhealth.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Goldhammer. Thanks for helping with us. And I wanted to let everybody know that coming up Wednesday, March 24th at 6 p.m. Eastern, we are going to have Evelise Capo from the Food Pharmacy. She's going to do a culinary demo for you. She is a wonderful cook. She does a lot of great things, and you're going to learn a lot from Evelise. And I hope that you're going to join us there. And again, I wanted to say thank you to Dr. Goldhammer. I wanted to thank engineer in the background. We had Rebecca from PKA Solves, and she's been there engineering and doing all the great things in the background. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks. I wanted to also thank Jessica from JustTaseVoice.com. She did that voiceover with the countdown in the beginning. But most of all, I want to thank all of you guys, because you are the ones that have been typing in, be strong, be well, be green, and you're the ones that have been clicking like and sharing with people. And there's Cheryl. She has all potatoes and broccoli that she's sharing with us. And that's what keeps everything available for everyone in the internet to see this information. You're the one that's going to get this information out to everybody. So please share, like, subscribe. Until I see you again, be strong, be well, and be green. <laughs> <laughs>